Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Here's Pastor Mike with the message, The Coming King. So before he ascended back into heaven, um, the risen Christ appeared to Peter. This is back in John chapter 21. He appeared to Peter and he told him basically that one day Peter would be martyred for the faith. Okay, so that happened um, in John 21. You fast forward over 30 years and what you find out is now you have an old man, Peter. He's sitting down in Rome and he's writing a second letter to the Christian community. As he's writing this letter, he knows my time is short. What Jesus said is going to happen. I'm hiding out here incognito in the city of Rome, but one day the Roman soldiers are gonna find me and I'm gonna be a dead man. You say, how do you know all that's true? Because of what he said earlier in his letter. Uh, take a quick look at chapter one, verse 13. Chapter one, verse 13. Peter says, I think it right as long as I am in this body, right? As long as I'm physically alive, to stir you up by way of reminder. Here it is right here. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. I'm gonna die soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So Peter knew his time was short. What did he do? He wrote a second letter to the Christian community. He started his letter by talking about the importance of fruitful faith, having a, a faith that is evidenced by fruit. He continued his letter by talking about one of my favorite subjects, and that is the supernatural scriptures. As he continued to write, he talked about false teachers, how they're gonna come and secretly bring in destructive heresies. We called it covert corruption, and now, as he ends the letter, he's gonna talk about the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. Now, chapter three is replete with references about the end of the world. And not just Second Peter, but also the entire New Testament is replete with references about the second coming. And that's because the New Testament authors, they wanted people to be ready for Christ's return. That's the question today you can ask yourself in your own heart as you're listening to this Bible message. Am I ready? Am I ready for the Lord's return? And so regarding what the New Testament says about the second coming, John MacArthur, which by the way, anything MacArthur writes on the end times is gold. But he said that the apostles of Christ filled the 260 chapters of the New Testament with about how many references? <laughs> you guys see that? With 300 references to the second coming. 27 books in the New Testament, and yet there's about 300 references to the return of the Lord. That's a lot of references, and it begs this question. If the topic of the second coming is so prevalent within the New Testament, why in the world do churches ignore the topic? If the topic of the second coming is so prevalent in the New Testament, why are pastors 
so hesitant to speak out and to teach about it. I, for one, am very proud that Calvary Chapels, since Pastor Chuck Smith kicked off the first Calvary Chapel way back in the 60s, that Calvary Chapels have always understood the importance of what's called eschatology, the study of end time things. We feel it's so important, we spent a whole year, probably more than a year, uh, back in 2017, teaching verse by verse through the book of Revelation. And so those 33 messages are still available today on our website. If you go to our website, calvarypsl.com, you click on sermons, you click on books of the Bible, scroll down, you'll see the book of Revelation. It is there, and I had a jo- just the joy of being able to spend a year talking about end times. Now, if you weren't here last year, uh, we had an end times conference. Dr. Ed Heinsen came. Dr. Ed Heinsen, by the way, is the uh, Dean Emeritus of the School of Divinity at Liberty University. He's written over 40 books. He's 76 years old and he's still going strong, but he came and he spoke on the end times. You can access that end times conference um, at our website. Click on sermons, recent sermons, and then go down to special events, and it's right there. I really encourage you, if you didn't hear it, go back and listen to it, because he is a great speaker, and he's also um, an end times expert. All right, so right now, if you're looking at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, can you say amen so I know you're there? Are you guys ready to go through the Bible? Yes. All right, so here we go. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. Beloved, in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the prediction of the, the predictions of the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, and that's a reference to the developing New Testament. And so as Peter, in Rome, around AD 66, is writing out the second letter to the Christian community, you need to know that the New Testament had been gradually developing for the prior 20 years. All right, so we believe James wrote the book of James, the letter of James, around AD 45 to AD 49. And so from then, all the way until around AD 66, when Peter writes this letter, the New Testament has been developing. So by AD 66, the books that have already been written are the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the book of Acts, which is the history of the Acts of the Apostles, the birth of the church. Um, all, almost all of, of Paul's letters have already been written, they're already been delivered, and they're already circulating from local church to local church. Of course, 1 Peter's already been written because we're on 2 Peter, and James has been written, and probably Hebrews as well. The books that most likely had not been written yet are 2 Timothy, that is Paul's last letter from the dungeon in Rome. He writes to Timothy before Nero takes off his head. Uh, the little fiery letter of Jude, which we studied last year, as well of, as well as we believe all of John's writings. Okay, so the Gospel of John, the three little letters of John at the end of the New Testament, and the great book of Revelation, those books would be written by the end of the first century. You say, why are you telling us all this? Here's why, if you're listening, say amen here. 
The New Testament was written by the apostles and their associates. And ladies and gentlemen, the apostles were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. What does that mean? That means that the New Testament is not the product of myth. The New Testament is the product of eyewitness testimony. What does that mean? That means that the New Testament was written in the second half of the first century. That's so early on after the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you can rely on the New Testament. It is accurate history. In verse two, Peter writes to the Christian community. He says, I want you to remember two things. I want you to remember the prediction of the holy prophets. That's the Old Testament. But don't stop there. I also want you to remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. That's a reference to the developing New Testament. Both old and new are vital. All right, so look at verse three now. He says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come. In the last days, with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So Peter said in the last days, scoffers gonna come on the scene, they're gonna mock this whole idea of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Where's the promise of his coming? How can you believe that the Lord Jesus is going to return? Don't you realize that since the beginning of time, all things have continued on in the same way? We call this line of thinking today uniformitarianism. In other words, uh, natural law has taken over and um, there hasn't been any cataclysmic judgments. All things since the beginning of time have continued on in the same way. My question is, is that true? Or was there a cataclysmic event in history that changed everything? Well, let's find out what Peter says in verse five. For they, the skeptics, the ones who mock, deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, the earth was formed by the word of God. Macroevolution is a myth, by the way. Verse six, and that by means of these, the world that then existed, here it is, was deluged with water and perished. That leads uh, to your first point, if you're taking notes, and that is that God judged the world in the past with what element? You tell me. Water. So when skeptics come on the scene and they say, you Christians, you know, you talk about Christ's return, you talk about the coming judgment, you talk about the end of the world, but the fact of the matter is, since the beginning of time, everything has continued on in the same way. If they say that, we should reply, have you forgotten about the flood? The flood, Genesis 6 and following chapters. The global flood. You say, you really believe that God flooded the earth 
Yes, a thousand percent I do. And by the way, the Lord Jesus Christ believed it as well. Did you know that in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said this, this is the Son of God speaking, please listen carefully. Jesus said, for as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, right, party time, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, Jesus said. And they, the unbelieving world, were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So if you believe the flood is a myth, then you have to reject the divinity of Christ. Because if Christ believed in a fairy tale, then he cannot be the Son of God. But the truth is, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus knows what he's talking about. And Jesus said there was a literal man named Noah, and yes, God did absolutely flood the earth. So even though Christ pointed to the flood, even though the biblical authors pointed to the flood, even though science points to the flood, even though many ancient cultures like the Sumerians and the Babylonians and many others all point to a flood, you need to know that skeptics reject it. Why? The reason they reject it, because if it's true, that means there actually is a holy God who judges sin, and they hate that idea. They don't want there to be a God who's holy and who judges sin. Why? Because John tells us that men love darkness rather than light. And so if there really is a God who flooded the earth, that means I need to repent. And quite frankly, I don't want to repent. And so you keep your God, and you keep your flood, etc., etc. And they mock and they scoff, a God who loves them. So sad. Now in Genesis chapter nine, after the flood, God promised he would never again judge the world with water. You guys remember the sign of his promise to all of us? Right, it's the rainbow. That's God's promise right there. He'll never flood the earth with water. That, by the way, can be found in Genesis 9, 12 through 15. It says that God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow, my rainbow, in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow, the rainbow, is seen in the clouds I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, here it is, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Not talking about local flooding here, he's talking about all flesh, a global flood. And so if God promised not to destroy the earth with water, how's he gonna judge the earth in the future? Yeah. That's what Peter says. Let's look at what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse seven. It says, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for, can you guys say the word fire? Fire. There's fire in the future. 
are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment. There's a day of judgment, it's coming. And the destruction of the ungodly, ungodly people will be destroyed. You say, that's unsettling, I don't know if I like that. Listen, we're just going verse by verse. I don't hear that very much in churches because churches don't teach the Bible. A lot of them don't. We have to stay with God's word. Otherwise, what are we doing? Jump down to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter's not done yet. Jump down to verse 12. He says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. All right, that leads you to your next point if you're taking notes and that is that God will judge the world in the future not with water but with fire. All right, so when is this gonna occur? Peter tells us in verse 10, it'll occur during the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. That's a phrase that you ought to be familiar with because the Bible says it a lot. The day of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, to understand the word day in the phrase day of the Lord, let me liken it to this. If I were to say to you, hey, back in grandpa's day, gas was cheap. If I were to say that, you would know that my use of the word day in the sentence, grandpa's day, does not refer to a literal 24-hour period, but it rather refers to an extended period of time, right? Back, let's say, in 1950, when gas was 18 cents a gallon. By the way, don't you wish it was 18 cents a gallon today? All right, so back in grandpa's day, right? It's not a 24-hour day. It's the same thing with the day of the Lord. When you see that phrase in the Bible, it's not referring to a 24-hour time period. It's referring to an extended time period during which the Lord is gonna wrap everything up. My favorite book on the end times is written by a man named Dwight Pentecost. It's called Things to Come. Um, I read this book over 30 years ago I know I'm getting old, in Bible college. It's not for the faint-hearted. It's 670 pages long. I had to read it for an eight-credit hour class on eschatology. Um, but I'm so glad that I read this book. I think I was 18 when I read it. And I'm so glad for godly men like Dr. Pentecost, who's now with the Lord in heaven, and um, just for this reason alone. Because in that book, Dr. Pentecost doesn't just tell you what he believes. If you're listening, say amen here. He doesn't just tell you what he believes, he tells you why he believes it. You guys see the difference there? I can stand up here all day long and tell you what I believe, what I believe, what I believe. The question is, are you gonna go home and study it for yourself to understand why you believe what you believe? That's important, that's being a Berean, as we saw last week, who were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians because they went home and checked the word of God to see if what Paul was saying was true. And so um, in this book, Dr. Pentecost uh, said this regarding the day of the Lord. 
He said the day of the Lord is that extended period of time beginning with God's dealing with Israel after the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation period and extending through the second advent and the millennial age until the creation of the heaven, the new heavens and the new earth after the millennium. One of the best things I learned from this book all those years ago was that the key to understanding end times, the end times correctly is hermeneutics. The word hermeneutics simply means Bible interpretation. Okay, and so there's a lot of people that use the allegorical method of interpretation wrongly, and what they do is they go back to the Old Testament, they say God is done with Israel, and all the promises that God made to Israel are now fulfilled in the church. Why the church? Because they say, you'll never hear me saying this, the church has replaced Israel. God's done with Israel. How many of you believe that God is a promise keeper, not a promise breaker? And so what we have to do, hermeneutics, is we don't interpret the Bible allegorically. We can make it say whatever we want it to say if we do that. What we have to do is we have to interpret it at face value. Ladies and gentlemen, please hear this. The correct method of interpretation of the Bible is the literal grammatical method of interpretation. As I've told you a thousand times before, if my wife writes me a love letter, I'm not gonna read the letter saying, what does she really mean? I mean, what's the meaning behind the meaning? No, I'm just gonna take it at face value. You can take this book at face value. The literal grammatical interpretation is the right interpretation. That's not to deny, that's not some kind of wooden literalism that denies that there's literary devices in the Bible. The Bible's filled with literary devices. The Bible's filled with metaphors. The Bible is filled with symbols. The book of Revelation, I learned this from a guy named Thomas Ice, who's another end, end times expert, but the book of Revelation has at least 44 symbols. Did you know that those, behind every symbol there's a literal truth? And so half of those symbols are defined in the book of Revelation, the other half are defined by the rest of the Bible. The book of Revelation is not hard to understand. You just have to read it at face value and use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And when you do that, you read the New Testament, put all the pieces together, it becomes apparent that this is gonna be the order of end time events. Ladies and gentlemen, there will be a rapture of the church. There's gonna be a rapture of the church. People mock it. Fellow evangelical Christians mock it. It's right there in 1 Thessalonians chapter four. Paul said under the inspiration of the Spirit, we're gonna be harpazo. In the Latin Vulgate, it's rapturo. In the, in, where we get the English word rapture? <laughs> we're gonna be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Why is that so hard to believe? And so yes, there's gonna be a rapture of the church followed by a seven-year tribulation, followed by the second coming of Christ, followed by the millennial reign, followed by a new heavens and a new earth. So the next major event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church, unless the battle of Gog and Magog, which you can read about later in Ezekiel 38 and 39, nothing like what you read later in Ezekiel 38 and 39 has ever happened before in history, and it says in those chapters that the stuff that makes up the content of those chapters will happen in the last days. What's gonna happen? 
Russia, Persia, which is Iran, Turkey, other nations are gonna attack Israel. No end times expert knows if that happens before the tribulation or during the tribulation, okay? And so I don't know either. We'll find out when it happens. But here's what I do know. The next event that is absolutely eminent is the rapture of the church. Ladies and gentlemen, Christ is the bridegroom. We're the bride, and God has not appointed the bride to wrath. And so there's gonna be wrath that is poured out during the tribulation period. All hell's gonna break loose. God's gonna open the seals, blow the trumpets, pour out the bowls of wrath on this earth. We're not appointed to wrath. You say, why not? Here's why, if you're listening, say amen. amen. Because Jesus Christ took the wrath of God in our place already. He already took the wrath. This is the gospel. Some of you don't have this yet, and I'm pleading with you to allow the Lord to get this into your spirit. Stop trying to work your way to heaven. You can't be good enough. All of us are sinners. The ways of sin is death. That's why Christ came and died in our place. It was a substitutionary atonement. He paid it all. He took the wrath of God. He rose again, defeated death, hell, and the grave. And here's what he does. He, if we'll turn to him in repentance and faith, he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that when a holy God looks down on us, he doesn't see our self-righteousness. No, that doesn't get us anywhere. He sees the beautiful, awesome, precious righteousness of Jesus. And so what's he gonna do? He's taking us out of here, just like he took Lot out of Sodom before the wrath fell on Sodom. And so during the tribulation period, there's gonna be cataclysmic judgments, just like a woman who's pregnant, who's in labor, and the contractions, I must have said this a thousand times as I was teaching through Revelation. The contractions are getting stronger and closer together, stronger and closer together, but what does it culminate in? The birth of a beautiful baby. And so during the seven-year tribulation, second bullet point, cataclysmic event, cataclysmic event, cataclysmic event, stronger, closer together, but what's it gonna give birth to? The beautiful, awesome second coming of Jesus Christ and the birth of the millennial reign of Christ. You say, why does that have to happen? Literally. Here's why. Because Jesus is a promise keeper and all those promises to Israel have to be fulfilled. They will be fulfilled during the thousand year literal reign of Christ on the earth. Don't let someone tell you that Jesus is now the son of David. He's reigning spiritually over the church, right? And so what are we doing? We're the spiritual recipients of Israel's promises. A lot of churches believe that. It's, I respectfully disagree, okay? It's not true. Jesus is coming, and he's gonna set up his kingdom, and he's gonna rule over Israel and the world for a thousand years, and then, after all of that, we get to the new heavens and the new earth. But before that, God must dispose of the old heavens and the old earth. We see that in Revelation 20, verse 11. This is a disturbing verse. But John said, then I saw a great white throne. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you're not sure where you stand with God, whether your sins are forgiven, you gotta turn to Christ because this is where you're gonna end up. Unforgiven, unsaved people go to the great white throne judgment. That's not the judgment you wanna go to. You wanna go to the judgment seat of Christ. But nonetheless, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it 
and from his presence, earth and sky fled away. Like what is happening right now in the Bible? From Christ's presence, earth and sky, that is the space-time material universe, fled away and no place was found for them. After the millennium, during the time of the great white throne judgment, when all the unsaved masses from all ages are resurrected to be judged and they go into the lake of fire, at that time, around that time, earth and sky is gonna flee from Christ because no place can be found for them. That is exactly what Peter foresaw. Again, please look at verse 10, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, here it is, when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so the word heavenly bodies, the term heavenly bodies in the ESV, it literally means the elements. You'll see that in most of your translations, the elements. What does that mean? That means that just as our space-time material universe had a beginning, so one day our space-time material universe will have an end. This is not in the notes, but I, I wanna share it anyway. Did you guys know that most of the intellectual community now, the vast majority of the intellectual community, whether you're talking about sacred or secular, believe now that the universe had a beginning. Our contention as Christians is that if it had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. Thomas Aquinas called him the unmoved mover, right? He's the first cause. Why? Because ladies and gentlemen, look around. The material universe didn't come from nothing. It had to start somewhere and if it had a start, it has to have a starter, a creator. And that person cannot be part of the space-time material universe because then the question is, well, who created him? No, he has to be outside of the space-time material universe. He has to be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. Who is he? He's the great I am, the self-existent one, Yahweh God. He's eternal and we should give him praise and honor because he always will be. He always has been and he always will be. So he started it and one day he's going to end it. Now regarding the destruction of the material universe, another one of my favorite authors is John Phillips. And he said the Holy Spirit is saying here that at the end of the age a great conflagration, a great fire of the heavens and the earth will occur. Peter employs language of the most precise kind. He says that the elemental particles of matter, which we now call atoms, will be dissolved, untied, released. Their energies, hitherto imprisoned, will be set free. And so right now, our omnipotent God holds the atoms together. One day, he'll let them go. And what's gonna be the result? Peter says, the heavens will pass away with a roar, a loud noise, the elements are gonna be burned up and dissolved. And then, 
eternity happens, time is done. Now, as we keep thinking through these things, you gotta understand that the world, right, is rushing toward the day of judgment and most of them don't even know it. They have no clue. And I don't want us to misunderstand the heart of God as we're teaching on the end times, okay? So the heart of God, very important you get this, it might be the most important part of the message. The heart of God is conveyed in verses eight and nine. All right, so look at verses eight and nine. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. You know, people say, good grief, Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, where is he? It's been a long time. Well, not really. If you're the eternal God, it's been two days. Verse nine. The Lord, here's the heart of God, is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that, how many? All should reach repentance. Here's your next point, here's the heart of God. Our merciful God is giving people time to repent. First Peter, I'm sorry, First Timothy chapter two, verse four. Okay, so this is a great memory verse. Because we, we, we wanna accurately represent the Lord, right? A great memory verse, 1 Timothy chapter two, verse four. It says this, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You guys get the heart of God there? Yes, he's a holy God. Yes, he's a righteous judge. He's also kind, loving, and merciful. And it says that God desires all people people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What does that mean? That means, thank God, he's merciful. And if God is merciful, that means that you and I should be merciful as well. And one of the most merciful, filled, mercy-filled things that we can do is we can join God in his evangelistic work as he's drawing people in love to himself. This is what we wanna be doing as Christians, as we're waiting for Christ's return. We should be praying for lost people and we should be witnessing to them with our lips and with our lives. George Mueller is a beautiful example of this. George Mueller, in his lifetime in England, he cared for over 10,000 orphans. I mean, this guy right here, that's a hero of the faith. This guy right here is a big deal, and yet nobody in America hardly at all knows who he is. But this guy, he knew. You have only one life, it'll soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ is gonna last. He poured himself out, took care of 10, over 10,000 orphans, and not only that, he also prayed for his lost friends and loved ones. Mueller had five friends who didn't know the Lord. And so what did he do? He said, I'm gonna commit to praying for them on a regular basis. Now listen to this. After praying for five years, one came to the Lord. And then, after praying another five years for a total of 10 years, two more came to the Lord. And then, after praying for a total of 25 years, this guy must have been stubborn, he finally comes to the Lord. 
but there's still that fifth friend. You guys know how long Mueller prayed for this guy? 52 years. 52 years he prayed for his lost friend or lost loved one, and then Mueller died. As far as he knew, this guy doesn't know the Lord. He's gonna die in an unforgiven state. But here's the good news. God is not willing that anybody should perish. And three months after Mueller's funeral, this guy finally turns to Christ in repentance and faith, receives Jesus as his Savior and Lord, and he's saved. What does that mean? That means if you have a friend or a lost loved one, don't ever give up on them. Don't ever look down your nose self-righteously at them and judge them or criticize them. No, because you and I used to do the same things in our BC days. What do we do? We pray for them, we love them, we live Christ-like in front of them, and as God opens doors, we give them these invite cards to come to church, if they'll come and hear the gospel. And we share the gospel as God opens doors with them as well. Don't give up, pray for them, and you can pray 2 Peter 3, 9 for them. So write this out on a three by five card or maybe type it into your phone notes. Here's God's word. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward, let's say your friend's name is Frank. He's patient toward Frank, not wishing that Frank should perish, but that Frank should reach repentance. Pray for your loved one, your friend, every single day. It may take some time, it may take some months, it may take some years, but just don't give up on them. Listen, God never gave up on us. All right, we're almost done. Let's look at verse 11 here. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Okay, here's your next point, and that is, it's application time, everybody. Because everything will dissolve, we have to live with resolve. So I'm gonna address Christians, and then I'm gonna address those who are not sure where you stand with the Lord. And that is, Christians, Peter says, because everything is going to dissolve, we need to live in holiness and godliness. All right, so what's holiness? You know this. Holiness means to be separate from sin, separated from sin, and separated to the Savior. From sin to the Savior. We live a holy life in the power of the Holy Spirit. But then godliness, what does that mean? It means reverence and respect to the Lord. That means that we, Christians, we honor him. So here's my question, you answer it in your heart, just be honest with yourself. Do you live a life of honor to Christ? And so, so many people can say, yeah, sure. Okay, so let me be more specific. You say, you're gonna make me feel conviction. Well, I feel it during the week, okay? So we're all gonna feel it. Do you, answer it in your heart, do you honor the Lord with your time, your talents, and your treasure? Let's get specific. Let's find out if we're really honoring the Lord. So look back at your last two weeks. Can you honestly say, that you had big chunks of time where you focused on the things of God. Spending time in his word, spending time in prayer. Um, if you're medically able, spending time fasting to the Lord. Um, um, 
coming and listening to the word of God, worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth, not just here, but also in your home or wherever, uh, sharing Christ with somebody, et cetera, et cetera, serving people. With your time, with your talents, that's your abilities and, and, and your, your uh, gifts. Some of you guys have spiritual gifts and you're not using them. We could use them in this local church. You just gotta step up and let us know that you wanna serve. But are, are you honoring the Lord with your abilities, with your gifts? Are you pouring into other people? And then with your treasure, your money. And so we don't just honor God with our lips, we also honor God with our wallet. And so what do we do? We follow the principle of the tithe. God gets the first 10% off the top, not because, you know, oh gosh, I have to do this. No, because we wanna do it. We wanna invest in the kingdom of God and we know that if we keep Christ first, right, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all this stuff's gonna be added to us anyway. God's a great provider. Look at what he did across the street with the school. Miraculously, just provision, right? And so why? Because the leaders of this church, here's one of the reasons why, we honor God in every area of our lives. We're not perfect, we're far from perfect, but we seek to honor the Lord, to give him the first place in every area, including our finances. And so the question is, are you really honoring the Lord following what Peter said when he said, live a godly life? And now I'm speaking to non-Christians. That means you're not sure where you stand with the Lord. Here's what you need to know, that the Lord will come. <laughs> whether we're ready or not, whether we want it to happen or not, he's gonna come, and it may be soon. And so I'm not so high and mighty that I'm not willing to say, please turn to Jesus while there's time. Please turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Receive him as the Savior and the Lord of your life. And then, after you're saved, start to follow him as a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. If you will, it's not by works, but if you will receive Christ as your Savior and Lord, you're gonna inherit this promise in verse 13. Look at it. It says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So here's your last point. And that is the new heavens and the new earth are gonna be filled with righteousness. Just think about it. Right now you read the headlines, it's all bad news. You look at what's going on in society, it's just horrific. But here's what you need to know. Evil will not continue on indefinitely. God's gonna come, he's gonna set it straight, he's gonna make a new heavens and a new earth, and no more sin, no more sorrow, no more, no more pain, no more hospitals, none of that, no more sickness, disease, or death. Righteousness is gonna be what is, we're gonna experience forever. And I am looking forward to that day, and I don't have time to read Revelation 21. You can read that um, in your own time, but let's wrap it up. Look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, this new heaven and the new earth, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our, this is interesting, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters. 
when he speaks in them of these matters. And Peter the fisherman, who's not educated as much as Paul, the former Pharisee, he said, there are some things in them in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other, can you guys shout out the last word in verse 16? Scriptures. Can everybody say scriptures? Go ahead. Okay, so what is Peter doing here? He's saying Paul's letters are scripture. Everybody look at me. Peter is equating Paul's letters, which is most of the New Testament, with the Old Testament scriptures. What does that mean? That means that both the Old and the New Testament breathed out by God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. If that makes sense to you, say amen. So important, you get that. Verse 17, you therefore beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability, but grow. Man, just grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. And all God's people said, amen. Men, now, as the elders and elders' wives come forward, you need to know, ladies and gentlemen, that when Peter put down his pen, it wasn't long after that, the door got kicked in. And the Roman soldiers, Nero's henchmen, came and they arrested him. And they took him to his execution. The early theologian Tertullian tells us that Peter was crucified. Peter martyred for the faith around 67 AD in the city of Rome. Here's the good news. To be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. And so the second he took his last breath on that cross, whether it was inverted or not, we don't know, but the last breath straight to be with Jesus. And you guys, you know, Peter heard those words with a big smile well done, good and faithful servant. I wanna hear those words, I know you do as well. So let's be diligent. Today is the first day of the rest of our life. With the help of the Holy Spirit inside of us, let's be diligent to live for the Lord with everything we have as lifelong followers of Jesus, amen?